You are listening to a podcast from the Royal African Society. This is a recording of the conference, The West Africa Ebola Outbreak, Gaps in Governance and Accountability, hosted by the Royal African Society on Wednesday the 8th of October 2014 at SOAS, University of London. Well, it's really uh, great to be here at the, the Society and also at SOAS, and uh, to be on the uh, you know, the panel with my good friend Kando, we did a lot of, uh, or we tried to do a lot of things together, not on Ebola, but on uh, on HIV, uh, access to drugs and uh, so on. And, and I think that experience is quite um, uh, useful. So let me start with the, the beginning. Um, as a journalist would call it, Ebola Ground Zero. This was uh, what uh, the title was in the FP Weekend magazine in, in May when I wrote a paper on that, or when I went back where in 1976, in what was then called Zaire, um, you know, the first known outbreak of, uh, of Ebola, hemorrhagic uh, fever, uh, happened. I had basically just graduated from the medical school, I was in Belgium, and uh, we, uh, um, I was in training in infectious disease and microbiology, uh, despite the fact that all my professors had told me that uh, at the end of uh, um, my medical school that there was no future in infectious diseases because uh, we have vaccines, uh, sanitation, uh, antibiotics and so on. But being a bit stubborn, I uh, just continued what I thought was what I'd like to do. And um, and this is also where um, my, uh, my uh, association with Africa started, uh, maybe on a, in a negative way because of this epidemic. But um, I, uh, I always see the positive in, in what's happening. And so in 1976, uh, we, uh, in our laboratory in, um, uh, in Antwerp, in Belgium, we isolated what is now called Ebola um, virus. Uh, it's a beautiful name for a real killer. Uh, the name comes from a, from a river that's uh, um, you know, flowing about 120 kilometers north of a place called Yambuku in the equatorial province of, uh, of what's now DRC. And uh, often viruses are called after the place where they first isolated, but we thought that uh, with such a deadly virus it would uh, uh, overstigmatize uh, the place and, uh, um, and everybody uh, living there. So we looked for a more neutral thing. What happened is that in 1976, um, at the same time, in South Sudan, around Zara and Maridi, and in uh, the equatorial province of uh, um, Zaire, um, and, uh, an epidemic occurred that was uh, uh, killing between 60 and 90 percent of the people it affected. And, um, in, um, um, and they were unrelated. We didn't know that, but it was quite a, a huge coincidence that these um, you know, two new epidemics, or epidemics by new virus, occurred simultaneously. And we actually are experiencing that uh, also today, because while there is a huge epidemic going on in West Africa, in DRC, there is a smaller, more classic uh, outbreak, which is actually already nearly under control. Um, and uh, later it turned out that the, these were two different viruses. Um, so Ebola virus, there are uh, five different uh, strains, to say types, you know, subtypes, and four of them can infect uh, uh, humans, one only, uh, non-human primates, and uh, they're called Zaire and then South Sudan, uh, these are the two uh, major ones. And the Zaire strain is the most deadly one, um, and that's the one that is also now affecting uh, West uh, Africa. Um, when we arrived there, uh, together with our colleagues from um, from Kinshasa and from um, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control uh, and WHO, Institut um, Pasteur in France, we um, we had no clue how this virus was transmitted. This is a bit of a problem because um, you don't want to be killed by the uh, you know the epidemic that you're investigating, and so that was uh, besides trying to stop the epidemic, uh, was to fig- figuring out how is it transmitted. And uh, um, soon what we found were a few things. And when you are faced with an epidemic of unknown origin, you try to, in the first place, very rapidly to define it in three terms, time, place, person. Time is that how, uh, you know, you plot it out, you go in the villages, uh, the hospital and so on, and uh, you can see when did it start, 
uh, was this an explosion, like when you are on a, at a picnic and you get food poisoning, by midnight nearly everybody is, uh, you know, on the toilet. Um, but uh, so that's uh, a very different curve than what we saw with Ebola. And it started um, like um, in that case in uh, August uh, to, uh, 1976. We arrived only at the beginning of, of October and the cases were already going down. We said, okay, that's good news. That's the time to arrive also as an epidemiologist. Um, but uh, the uh, and what that, what uh, and we wondered when when was the peak happening and when uh, did it go down and it turned out that that coincided more or less when people <coughs> abandoned the hospital. Secondly, place you could see the um, it was a concentration of cases around the uh, the villages that were served in the first place by the hospital. And thirdly, is uh, who gets this? And then you do a very very simple thing, and that is defined by age and sex. So you divide uh, other uh, men and women, and which age. And uh, what turned out is that there were more women than men who were affected then, and particularly in the age group between 20 and 30. Now we were a bunch of men, so it took us a, a couple of hours to figure out what's the difference between men and women of 20 and 30, but of course women can get pregnant. And then we thought, hmm, what, uh, what's so special about that? And um, make a long story short, we compared the notes that of the, what we had collected uh, in, in villages and then in the, the hospital records. And it turned out indeed that the excess of women who had died with Ebola had all gone to the antenatal clinic in, uh, in that hospital. Then we said, well, what is going on there? And then um, we found out that um, this was a popular antenatal clinic and that uh, every morning Mother Superior, this was run by Catholic nuns, she would distribute five needles and syringes. And so every woman who came there got an injection and uh, the syringe was uh, uh, flushed with, just with water in between at the best. And so uh, just as for hepatitis, for HIV, this is how you can transmit the virus very quickly. So that gave us the clue to it. And then the second thing we found, so there was the hospital was a problem injections, and then we also saw that after a funeral, about a week later, several people of the family fell in. So basically, nothing has changed in the meantime, uh, except that injections uh, have not been reported. So we found the basic modes of transmission. The good news is, it was not mosquitoes, it was not airborne, um, it was, uh, you know, not through food and, and, and water and so on, because uh, if that would be the case, um, you know, uh, Ebola would have caused absolutely devastating epidemics uh, worldwide. Um, but that's not the case, and that has not changed. And since this question comes up quite regularly, can this virus become airborne? The answer is no, basically. There is no precedent in uh, history of, of the viruses where a virus changes so dramatically its mode of transmission. Even after millions of passages uh, through humans, um, because this is a virus, uh, and we um, assume it's coming from bats. It was called in the beginning uh, green monkey disease, and bushmeat was uh, accused, but frankly, there is, that's not the issue. It's bats um, that's coming from bats. Uh, HIV from chimps. The flu from uh, poultry or swine. You know, or, or, and, uh, and, uh, and both the flu and the HIV, they tr mutate all the time, but it's still sexually transmitted. And the flu is still the same way of transmission. So I wouldn't be worried about that. Now, in the meantime, since that outbreak in uh, 76, the second one was also in Benzaya in 95, in Kikwit, a small town, well, small, a few hundred thousand people. But in each case, it was contained. But it caused a death of about 300 um, people. Then, until the beginning of this year, about 25 outbreaks happened, all in Central Africa, mostly uh, DRC, Uganda, but a bit in South Sudan, and uh, then was one in Gabon, and, uh, and in Congo, Brazzaville, and one in Angola. Um, but in total, only, well, only about 1,500 people were killed uh, during these outbreaks over, what is this, uh, four, um, uh, 38 years. So 1,500 divided by 38, let's say that's, that's, less, that's about 40 deaths per year. So this was not a real public health problem. And I never thought that uh, Ebola would become a major issue. I thought, okay, it's bad when it happens, five minutes, yes. Um, 
But then happened what happened here. And so you know the story, in, uh, it started in Guinea in, um, you know, in, in December uh, last year already when someone became infected, the first case. And it, was, it took until March before people really could identify this was Ebola. The main reason for that were two main reasons. One, nobody thought that Ebola would pop up in, in West Africa. So you, you can only find what you're looking for. And secondly, um, that the, um, you know, the whole infrastructure for uh, you know, health information, health services, is really in pretty bad shape. Um, and uh, so in, in March, the alert was given, this is Ebola. Um, and then, um, actually, besides there's some local uh, activities, and then also MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders, not much happened. And then it took another five months, a thousand deaths, and two Americans who were repatriated before this was declared a public health emergency by WHO. And um, I knew that something bad was going on in the end of June, because in, in Guinea, it was uh, in, in May, it was going down. So I thought, oh, that's great news. But then went up again in the same area, Kekegu and so on, and, the, and then cases appeared in uh, Sierra Leone in Liberia, just in that border area where there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, connections and, and, and mobility of people. And, uh, and now we are uh, where we are, 3,600 deaths, at least 7,500 people infected, unprecedented. And uh, why, uh, why uh, this big epidemic and what is different from before? It's very hard to tell, but it's probably what I call a perfect storm. It's an accumulation of small things, well, big things. Um, of course, two of the countries come out of very difficult years, civil war, um, where many people left the country, professionals. Liberia had 51 uh, doctors registered in uh, 2010 uh, for a population of uh, what, 4 million and a bit. Uh, and so, so less than a, one doctor per 100,000 people, uh, practicing doctors. We had um, uh, you know, a breakdown of, uh, of society, of uh, health services and all that. A lot of uh, lack of trust and so on. So I think, uh, and then the beliefs in what in causation of disease, and that's still, I think, a, a big problem. The issues. So that's, uh, I think, uh, the, that background and a slow response. What we've learned is, if you're there immediately, you can contain epidemic when it's still small, and that's what happened now in, in DRC, done entirely by Congolese. <coughs> they, uh, within a week, they had a diagnosis made in Kinshasa. They sent a team. The minister of health went there. They put a whole area in quarantine, and uh, you know there was not one foreigner who was involved in that at that moment. Um, MSF gave them some isolation beds and so on, and um, and the result is now that uh, uh, okay, that's fairly contained. I must say though that the um, mobility, uh, the, the transportation is far more complicated than in uh, you know in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and, and, and Guinea. So that that is that helps that um, also. Um, what works, what can we do, and then I'll stop, um, is um, at the moment we don't have more than in 76, and it's uh, isolating patients so that you don't infect someone else. Of course, trying to care for them, um, and with some decent care in terms of uh, uh, you know, uh, rehydration and all that, you can decrease mortality, which at the moment is, is about 70%. It can be down to about 50%, still enormous. Um, making sure that all the contacts are being followed for fever, and then making the burials and the funerals um, safe. So, what uh, interrupting transmission in the hospital, even if there's still healthcare workers, which who are the front line here, there are like over 200 who died in the meantime. Um, we know basically what to do with protective gear and so on. How to make sure that there's no transmission in the community? That's another matter. And this is where, um, yes, yes, Madam Chair, so uh, uh, where I, I think we, we need to concentrate our efforts now and to think through. That is not biomedical science. That is understanding what people think, feel, believe, um, societies, and so on. And um, to end, I think that um, we have, on the other hand, also some uh, hope-giving uh, research going on. Finally, um, Experimental drugs and vaccines that were on the shelf uh, are now being further developed. 
So uh, they may come too late for this epidemic, but I think they will. It's really an accelerated development. Um, but at least then, when the next time the epidemic will, uh, Ebola will hit, because there will be a next time, because the virus is somewhere in the butts there, that we have more than isolation and quarantine, and that we have stockpiles of drugs in Africa where there's a problem and vaccines that can be used. Um, how long will it last? I don't know. I think it will probably get a bit worse before it's getting better, but at least now I think the international and the national response are being put in place. I think that is uh, very important and uh, um, so I'm quite uh, well optimistic, maybe a bit of an overstatement, but I'm confident that by the end of the year we should see some real impact of all the measures that have been put in place. Thank you and sorry for... I feel like an imposter here because I've only been involved in the Ebola response for about two months and, and I didn't volunteer to come here. Those of you who obviously know Titi know she ordered me to come and, uh, and I didn't dare say no. Um, I, when I um, joined the army back in the 70s, um, I remember very vividly being taught, taught about viral hemorrhagic fevers, which was still really exciting and the sort of thing you would never see in the late 70s and, um, and the 80s. Um, full circle, we've, we're seeing an awful lot of it at the moment. Uh, and just to develop a little bit on what Professor Pio said, I was with MSF last week. You know, we should have someone from MSF here, but they're just so busy dealing with it. They are absolute heroes in this response. They've been there um, really tirelessly from the beginning. And, and they've been doing some epidemiological surveys of their own to just try and understand why this epidemic has exploded in the way it has. And I think that, um, that once we have hopefully contained and dealt with this, there will be some really fascinating epidemiology coming out of it, which reflects on the health infrastructure in that part of the world. Because they think that the epidemic spread to Monrovia because people were crossing the border, very porous borders, seeking treatment, and seeking it through an informal healthcare system, where healthcare workers working in the government system, working privately, were treating people according to any old protocol that they made up. And that's how it took hold in Monrovia so quickly, because they've traced quite a lot of the spread to healthcare workers. So although we are saying a lot of healthcare workers are being infected, it might be that a lot of healthcare workers have passed on the infection. Just to develop that theme, um, last week they'd had 13 healthcare workers who'd become infected. MSF absolutely concerned about this because they think their protocols are so good. They think that 11 out of those 13 acquired the infection treating patients privately outside of the facility. Again, a really, really powerful lesson for us. So what has Safety Children got involved in this? You know, we're not going out there to um, treat children. We were approached only six or seven weeks ago by, um, by DFID um, in a very roundabout way to go and run a treatment centre in, um, in, in Freetown in partnership with the Ministry of Defence. So there's an interesting question which I'll come back to. Why is the military getting involved in this? The request was very specific. Healthcare workers would be coming infected and were running away from treatment facilities, particularly the government-led ones. International healthcare workers were not coming forward, apart from MSF, because they were worried that they would get infected. And the plan was that a, um, a state-of-the-art treatment facility would be built in Freetown to treat healthcare workers to a very high standard of assurance. And alongside that, we would build another treatment centre to be run by um, an NGO, in this case us, to treat uh, everyone else. Because that was, you know, seven weeks ago, there were only about 12 cases in Freetown. That shows how quickly this has spread. So we were asked to, to step up, um, build this treatment centre, and, uh, and, and we, we agreed to do it, although it's slightly outside of our sphere of experience, for two reasons. A, because two years ago and over the last two years, we've been taking, uh, taking over Merlin, the health charity, which many of you will be familiar with, but also because we've been working in West Africa for many years now. Um, it, it has seen enormous um, improvements in development, over the last 10 years since the war ended in um, particularly Sierra Leone and Liberia, we've made enormous strides for the health of children, and all of this will be destroyed if this epidemic is not brought under control. It will still take us many years to rebuild the health, in health infrastructure. Ebola might have killed three and a half, four thousand 4,000 people, but 
tens if not hundreds of thousands of children are dying and will die over the next few years unless we can restore that health infrastructure. That's why Save the Children is doing it. We think this is much bigger than Ebola, but the immediate problem is Ebola. So what are we doing? Well, having been asked to build a treatment facility and run it, we were amazed on our first visit five weeks ago to find that the President had already built the facility. His reputation was on the line. He'd enlisted some very good contractors, and they'd thrown this thing up in the middle of a swamp in a place called Kerry Town, about uh, 50 minutes' drive out of Freetown, because they didn't want it too close to the town. Um, the Ministry of Defence is uh, engaged in modifying it so that it looks like a treatment facility tidying up some of the edges, but it will be a facility that's able to treat um, 12 people in a very bespoke unit, which is a tented unit, and up to 80 people in a hard facility built along MSF WHO guidelines. So that's great. My background in the military, and I'm, I'm a doctor, um, I've cut my teeth over the last 20 years or so on preventive health and on trauma. And in the treatment of trauma, what we talk about is capability. Capability is not a building. It's not a building with doctors in it. It's a building with, with doctors in it and nurses in it and people in it who've got the right amount of training, who've got the right logistic support, who've got the right equipment, who've got the right policies and procedures, and in this case, who are supervised adequately to absolutely rigorously apply those procedures. And the first myth that we're trying to bust in Ebola is, is just how infectious it is. You know, if you look at the press, you'd think that it was a contagion that was going to spread across the United States, across the UK, across Spain, across Norway as of yesterday. It's not that contagious. The infection rate is less than one to two. So one person transmits the virus to about 1.8 other people. And the trick in mounting an epidemic like this is to bring that number under one. They are not to below one. I'm probably telling many of you what you already know. But the, the trick is to get the transmission rate below one. That's the first thing. You do that by, by um, identifying cases, by isolating people, by tracing contacts. But absolutely central to giving people the confidence to come forward to be diagnosed is giving them the hope that they will receive some form of treatment. And one of the mistakes that was made early in this epidemic is that people didn't believe that the health facilities were either adequate or were acting in their best interests. And there's a whole host of really deep-rooted cultural um, beliefs around um, all sorts of viral and um, hemorrhagic diseases in particular in West Africa about how people should be treated. And I think the international community that did get involved didn't get the messaging right. It seems silly to talk about the disease in terms of messaging, but one of the most important things is to tell people what you are doing, to explain it to them, and give them the confidence that they can trust you, that you are actually going to do what you say. There's a very, very important issue here, for example, around handling of the dead. And when you take people away from their homes and put them in treatment facilities and then put their bodies in bags and either burn them or burying, burying them in anonymous graves without telling people where, where you're putting them, that creates distrust on a massive level. And so the messaging around what we are doing and what the rest of the international community is doing is hugely important. And I think we've got quite a lot of ground to make up to get people to trust us and everyone else. So we're putting in place a capability. We're going to recruit some healthcare workers. We've had 450 volunteers from the NHS, but we're probably not going to use them initially because the Cubans have stood up and provided a medical team, and, and it seems rather odd that the Cubans should be getting involved in this. But those of you who know Cuba will know that their health service is actually superb. Um, they have a long history of, of um, supply medical support in disasters in Haiti and Mozambique. And they're providing a team of about 160 doctors and nurses who volunteered to go to Syria um, for nine months. Um, I think slightly unrealistic in their expectation what they'll be able, whether they'll be able to sustain that. They're really well-trained, motivated people, so they're going to come and work with us. We're putting in place our own structure, management structure, logistics support, um, a training package, and we're going to take on two or three hundred locally trained healthcare workers, a slight unknown quantity at the moment because there is a huge demand on these people. Um, there's a big issue around building their confidence, trust, and paying them. And together we're going to run this facility, building it up slowly in line with MSF and WHO guidelines, gaining experience of what we can do, 
And the key, come, come back to this business about policies and procedures. The, the trick in treating Ebola is just prevention of cross-contamination. So get your patients in, isolate them, make sure that your staff are properly protected, and, and it's not um, rocket science, it's just protective clothing, which in temperatures of 40 degrees plus and high humidity is deeply, deeply unpleasant to wear. Um, and, and monitoring the staff, supervising them properly so that when they, when they go in, someone checks that their clothing is properly applied, supervising them when they're in there, and when they come out, making sure they follow the protocols for undressing. Treatment of Ebola, it just requires care. It is largely um, about replacing <coughs> fluid loss. People lose massive amounts of fluid, 5, 10 litres a day, very easily. That leads to a massive electrolyte imbalance. And so the trick is oral rehydration, <coughs> And, and if you are confident enough and careful enough, intravenous rehydration. Now, MSF in some of their facilities have become overwhelmed and have moved solely to oral rehydration. If the facility has the capacity, intravenous rehydration with tests of electrolyte virus are preferred because you can stabilize people much, much, um, much better. Um, we think that with proper treatment, you can bring the um, survival rate down to 70%. Um, that's a good aiming mark, and that's what you would expect to see in a, in a state-of-the-art um, infection control unit in, um, in this country, and that's what we will be aiming for. But there is no doubt that in some age groups, it will be very difficult to achieve that. So that's what we're doing. Save the Children's going to run this um, antibiotic treatment centre, but the UK government has stood up and has created um, funds to, to build another 600 beds. And that's going to be a real challenge on the international community to find the healthcare workers and to put in place the logistic support to do that. Is that five minutes over or five minutes to go? <laughs> Dancing around so much. Um, and, and, and this comes back to my, um, my early point, why is the military getting involved in this? There are some times in um, either rapid onset disasters, naturally occurring disasters, where the traditional way of approaching things doesn't work. And we've approached this in a very traditional way. Capability is built, being built up incrementally, depending on who fancy doing it. MSF is really taking the lead, they are exhausted. Their people are going out and, um, and staying there for four to six weeks, and then they have to come out. No one can sustain that level of work and that exposure to what is really quite a nasty disease to actually deal with in the way it presents, the way people die. Um, and so they're running out of doctors and nurses, but their people are going back for repeat, um, repeat tours in their facilities, and they must have about 500 beds across the region now. So this piecemeal approach is not ideal. It means we're competing with each other for resources, principally people with the right training. We're competing for the equipment, the protective equipment, because there's going to be a world shortage of that quite quickly. We have multiple layers within the United Nations now competing with each other to take coordinated control of the whole epidemic. And the military does have a role in bringing a command and control structure into this, but also they bring other capabilities. They can bring engineers in to build things quickly. They have good experience of water purification. You need massive amounts of water to deal with, uh, to run an Ebola treatment facility, just for cleaning down the surfaces. You need massive amounts of chlorine, massive amounts of uh, protective equipment. And the military does have some expertise in that area. In Liberia, the US military has set out to build rather more, maybe two, 3,000 treatment beds, but again, they will face the same problems. They will face problems of getting people to step forward and run those facilities. And I go back to what I said earlier. A facility is not a building with some people in it. It's the whole capability, the people who have the right training, the right equipment, the right logistics support, but most importantly, the policies and procedures that they can stick to rigorously. Because the worst outcome in the world would be to set up lots of treatment centers, put lots of people with a boulder into them, and then infect the whole workforce that goes into treatment. So th this is going to be um, quite a coordination challenge for the UN. World Health Organization is not set up to do this. They have understood the problem. It's a technical organization, and they've got some really bright people. They've got an awful lot of support for the Center for Disease Control in the, in the US. They've got a lot of support from Public Health England, who between them are running most of the mobile laboratories in the country because the, um, 
know, the, the notion of, of diagnosis in a country where fever, where, where diseases present with fever um, at a rate of probably you know, 10 or 100 to 1, malaria, tuberculosis to Ebola, it's really important to get the, the diagnosis right early on. Um, so the coordination effort around um, making everyone follow the similar procedures, around procuring all of the equipment you need, uh, putting in place training packages for thousands and thousands of staff now to run these treatment centres is going to be a, um, a considerable one. At the same time, we are, we are carrying on with the stuff we were doing before. Um, our contact tracing, our communication with communities, our child protection activities, because there are already five or 10,000 orphans across the region. Um, families are being broken up by this. And one of the quick plugs to save the children, we go in and respond in emergencies, but we will be there for the next five or ten years. We were there before for ten years, we'll be there for the next ten years. Because the task of reconstructing the health sector is going to be massive. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. I also want to thank the Royal African Society and so on for inviting me to share a few ideas. Uh, uh, Peter and I clash in different places on food crisis, HIV, AIDS, not because I'm a health expert, simply because we're development experts, and also sometimes we need a more holistic and interdisciplinary approach to solve major crises. And so this is one case where I'm not a health expert, but at least I know a little bit of development as well. I think if I'll write quite a bit on what Michael has said. Capability is not a building. It's, it's really about institutional development. And I think the challenge we face globally, but also for the countries, is, that, is the question whether our institutions globally and nationally can cope with, it, with the crisis of this magnitude. I've listened to a lot of experts now over the last one month being in meetings in Washington and the summit in New York and here, knowing that I don't think, Peter, you guys have seen anything of this scale and speed before. And this that's what WHO and others tell me. So we all learn. And what you say about incrementalism, we're doing it incrementally because that's what we knew before. But the speed and scale is beyond that. So uh, uh, I want to address some of those issues about the global level and then uh, nationally. But before that, for the Sierra Leoneans in the audience, there's some parallel here with our civil war. Let me give you a few parallels. Because we also, as Sierra Leoneans, need to learn. We make mistakes, we come back, we should learn to make sure they don't happen again. So I think we should ask ourselves, what are some of these parallels? Yeah? The parallels between the war in Sierra Leone and the current Ebola outbreak are unmistakable and very instructive. Both have threatened national security and the very survival of our people and the nation state. Both emanated from across the border, but they found fertile ground in the country lack of capability in the country, some mistakes, so it spread. Maybe belief systems as well, but it found fertile ground there. Um, in addition, in both cases, government, locals, we were all taken on away. We were not really, we were even in denial. Yeah, I called a few people in Bokema, also in Freetown, I know as bad as NSA. Yeah, oh, it's in fact something else. And there was a lot of misconception about what it was lack of knowledge, because it's new to us, we've never had it before. So, you know, similar to the war, we, we were not prepared and we were probably sometimes in denial about what it is and how fast it will spread, yeah? Um, inadequate institutional capacity mm -hmm. to deal with that previous crisis and this one as well. But more importantly, in all of this, we're realizing we do need the international community. A lot of international solidarity to be able to solve this. This is beyond our capability. That's a local Sierra Union context. But Peter, I guess for you, looking at this now global, we've moved, we have a global system now where we've moved from an industrial age to a hyper-connected age. Of course you have to agree that the, the, the virus has gone to five African countries, but of course it did land in the United States. It did land in Spain, in this hyper-connected world. Do we have a biosafety, biosecurity, biosurveillance system that really, if we had another outbreak, can cope with this fast enough? 
we were slow in the international community. Maybe we were also taken on our hands because our institutions were not fully ready. In this hyper-connected world, what if there was something else but it was more airborne? Is, is our system ready? And I've seen a lot of writings now where they're saying, maybe we need to take a second look. Our biosafety systems globally are, are not really ready for this. So that's another level of governance. And in fact, this is why the Secretary General hosted this summit in New York. And it was very telling. Having in that room the President, President Obama and others, and the medical practitioners, and NSF saying to them, nice pledges, but I need the supply now. But then you want to do the normal UN procurement system. Hello? Because of accountability. But the Chinese flew in the jets quickly. Shouldn't we be rethinking this? But also now we needed to bring in military logistics because it is beyond our traditional health system. So for us, in the global system, I'm just saying from a gov global governance standpoint, maybe we need to rethink. Are we really ready for this? Did we respond fast enough? Could we have done it better? And what do we learn now to make sure it doesn't happen again? Now, Peter, you're the expert, I'm not. But I do know that it's happened a few times in Congo. It's happened about three or four times in Uganda. Could it happen again in these three countries if we don't set up the right infrastructure? What if it does and it's even more aggressive? Will we be ready? Which would influence, therefore, from a global governance standpoint, how we will deploy the massive amount of resources we're pumping in. Will we build capacities within these countries to be able to do this themselves? You know, somebody sent me a piece today from Sierra Leone. It wasn't meant for me, it was meant for somebody else, but I was in this loop of emails. He said, please tell your people no more consultants. We need doctors. Okay? So if the next outbreak occurs, will we have enough doctors and facilities to really deal with this? I think that's important. Um, local governance what happened of course we were not ready of course our medical facilities were not capable of handling this so which begs the question now from lo local governance what are some of the lessons we will be willing to learn first of all again we must make central in our development policy institution building in Africa but I, let me not generalize but let me talk about Sierra Leone even though I work all across Africa Sometimes we like quick fixes. We want that quick solution. You know, in Sierra Leone, people say, ah, boy, it's simple, we know how for doing. You know, and we want that quick fix, and it doesn't happen because we don't have the time to recognize that nations function because of institutions. To give you an example, in his country, in Belgium, there was a time they couldn't get a government for what? 13 months or 18 months? No, two, two years. Two years. <laughs> <laughs> but the buses ran on time. They picked the garbage. The economy ran because of institutions. Obama always says to Africans, Africa does not need strong men. Africa needs institutions, democracy, values, procedures, and, and, and protocols. But we like quick fixes. Therefore, when we have a crisis like this, we want to do the usual. Trivialize it. Move quick. We all, including me, we shape the rest then quick. <laughs> but the rice is a billionaire. It's just one thing because they needed it. But that does not build an institution. So for us then in Africa, how do we use this crisis to build the right medical infrastructure and institutions? All this money coming in, is it for a quick fix? How determined are we then to say, yes, we develop testing systems because it will come again? That's our responsibility. They're willing to help. But what are we going to do with it? That's important for us in terms of sectoral governance in the healthcare system. It's not everyday people will come and help. Even those who say the international community moves slow. Well, let me tell you, I was at the airport four weeks ago with my colleague. You know, I started talking to Ebola. I said, sorry, Kanye, I'm headed for Syria. There's another crisis there. We have refugees of ISIS to deal with. The international community gets tired after a while. So even for us, they should teach us a lesson. We said healthcare is a priority. Did we do what it took to build the right system? What will we do in the future? The same happens with other institutions. Education, governance, economic development. It is about institutions. If you have institutions, you, rely, you, you adhere to the protocols, you can really recover. How do we, what do we need to do to go forward? Just four quick points. Going forward. First of all, I think in terms of governance, our governments must learn from the mistakes made. 
They must be humble. They must be ready to gain that trust again from the people. You said it, I did not say it, there is a partition on the ground. There is a lack of trust. So when you give information, they don't believe it. I give you an example on the data. We're still arguing over whether the, 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 the mortality rates reported are accurate. We don't know. But you need a system. So how do the governments go back and build trust, and how can the international community help them? Just transparency. And the real honesty to say to people, this is not a quick fix. I need to work with you. Remember what Obama did in 2008. After he gave, came into office, after the financial crisis, he said to the Americans, this is not a quick fix. We've never had an economic meltdown like this. I need to work with you. He was frank. He put the stimulus package and worked with the people to create jobs, to rebuild the economy. That's what we need to do in this crisis. Let nobody, no fool anybody say, this will be fixed and quick. This is why people were dancing last week. Because of one shutdown. They were dancing already. Ebola don't go. It's a lie. My wife and I were looking at the pictures. I said, my God, I wonder how many more people were infected. So let's convince our people that this is not a quick fix. We need to work with you. Second, what you said, then about, again, global government. Many people want to help. I'm part of the system. Yeah? But sometimes, even for those who want to help, there's not enough coordination, command and control. How are we in the international community going to ensure that, in fact, there's coherence in the approaches? Number three, we need good data. Garbage in, garbage out. If we're giving wrong statistics, we can't plan. We're just doing the usual game. Wrong statistics, no planning, because people believe, say, everything is common sense. Hell no. Common sense is not a daily aeroplane. Common sense does not find the cure for Ebola. Common sense does not create a good logistics management system. You need expertise. There are Sierra Leoneans who can do this, who can work like the Congolese and fix it. That's where we should end, because it will come back, or another crisis will come. So we must be ready then to build that capability. Finally, the economic impacts. That's what we're doing now. Yeah? i give you an example. In New York 10 days ago, in the same summit, uh, uh, one of the colleagues said, well, right now we, we are projecting Liberia serving on 45% GDP loss. If the worst case scenario of CDC happens, it will be total meltdown, he said. Total meltdown. Yes, I spoke with the Liberian Minister of Energy because I organized for him a signing ceremony with the European Union and the Norwegians for his power projects. Four of their energy projects to supply about 135 megawatts of power that should, be, that should come on board next year are all stopped. You know, I'm in the energy sector now. To do one of those projects sometimes is three to four years. So we're worried about these second order impacts. Today, Ngozi, uh, the Minister of Finance, did a piece in FT saying, please, watch the economics. If those airlines don't come back, if the insurance companies refuse to insure travelers or sailors, then we'll have a negative economic impact. In fact, we'll work. If that worst-case scenario, one million infections, happens, it's not only meltdown, some of those economies will lose 10 to 15% GDP. That can be stopped. And this is why the announcement today by the UK of another surge. So we need to use the military terminology. We need a massive surge of military technology, military prof professionalism, a lot of volunteers to really go in now and contain this. And I end there, Peter, maybe you and I need to advocate this more. Nations need to do more. This is about biosafety globally. It reached Spain. You can't, we can't deny that. It did reach <coughs> It could happen again, and it could reach everywhere. So it is in their own enlightened self-interest to say, look, we move our assets and we stop it. So yes, we call for a surge. We continue to appeal. I don't want to talk about what I have done. All of you have volunteered. I just want to close by saying we really have to pray for and thank our brave people. They didn't know this disease and they were trying to treat people. Many of them died. So for you and me in this room, Liberians and Aluminium, Guinea, ask yourself, what can I offer? Not to all 10 people they help you. What can I offer? As Kennedy says, it's not always what your country can do for you, right? What can you also do if the illiterate, semi-illiterate nurses were ready to take the risk to treat people? Can you send $50 in this room to help people in your community? Can you volunteer? I was going to go home last week. I changed because of something else. Another thing came up. 
But yes, I will go. Apart from what I've tried to do globally, you have to stand up and be counted too. Thanks. I'd actually like to begin by sort of begging your indulgence a bit and asking you to just um, join me in a moment of silence for everyone and anyone who's been affected and infected by this outbreak. Thank you very much. Um, there are five major points that I would like to make, and I think the first one, which I think is incredibly important, is throughout this entire process, I'm going to speak particularly about Liberia because that's what I know, that's my country, that's where I was born. Um, and for me, this issue is not only political, it's also very, very personal. Uh, context matters. Obviously, Ebola didn't happen within a vacuum. There's a context that reaches beyond even the post-war environment um, and goes to 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I'll say um, this by starting with a personal story. In July of last year, my cousin Bala Scott, who worked at one of the major referral hospitals in Monrovia, Liberia's capital, uh, went to a hospital the very hospital he worked at for abdominal pains that he had been experiencing for almost three or four days. Now the hospital took him in and a few days later they reported that he had been discharged from the hospital. Now my family came in through a major search through all the communities that we thought that we could find him in and we couldn't find him at all. So we assumed that something was wrong. Now his sister went back to the hospital and said I don't believe my brother was discharged and they insisted that he had been according to his hospital charts. Now needless to say, a few months later after the search proved futile, we got a call that Cousin Bala's body had been found on the very hospital compound in a corner of the hospital compound covered with dirt and debris. His body was so badly decomposed that only the family members who came to his rescue could identify the body. Again, this particular hospital where the body was found insisted that he had been discharged. And our major question to the hospital was, how can a man who's been discharged from the hospital be found dead in the hospital compound? Now, I tell this story because uh, after this particular incident happened, now, his case has never been solved. It's still, an, it's still a mysterious death. That we, that we have never been able to solve. Um, and I wrote a story at the time, previously I'd worked for the Liberian government, but I wrote a story in one of the major dailies. Basically, it was a personal appeal, but it was also an anger-ridden letter to the, the powers that be. And I argued that the reason our healthcare system was in such a disarray was because our national leaders don't go to the hospitals in Liberia. Our president, my former boss, every May goes to Yale Medical Center to seek care. She does her medicals there every May. Her cabinet officials fly to South Africa, they fly to Ghana, they fly to every other country besides Liberia to seek medical care. If they have a headache, if they're sneezing improperly, they go outside of Liberia. Now, needless to say, this uh, caused quite a bit of ire from my former colleagues, and I was called to the, pres the president's office. Now, I won't go into the contours of the conversation I had with the president, but I will say that she was not pleased. <laughs> and she wasn't pleased because this particular referral hospital, um, her sister was the chair of the board, her sister's friend was a chief medical officer, and they believed that my statements in this newspaper article were incredibly inflammatory, and they were meant to be, because Liberia's healthcare system is in the, the mess that it's in because we haven't invested in healthcare. Our healthcare budget hovers between eight to ten percent, when most most international agencies declare that fifteen percent is the least amount that countries should invest in health healthcare. Mm -hmm. Context matters. This was a year ago. Ebola did not happen within a vacuum. I can give you countless stories of innocent civilians who seek health care services and are turned away, not in the context of Ebola, but before Ebola, because we don't have the infrastructure in place in Liberia. And I can say this is probably not just unique to Liberia. The second point I want to make is that Ebola has reversed gains in our post-war recovery process. Now, Liberia um, came 
the armed conflict came to a halt in 2003 when we signed a peace agreement. And I have to say, um, because you know you can sort of wallow in self-pity and you can wallow in, in, in despair and say, well, we haven't done anything in the past nine years, but I think that would be incredibly disingenuous. And as someone who's worked in government, I can, I can honestly say, sort of being in the trenches, that there have been so many challenges that we've been able to overcome. We've been able to train a number of um, peace and security institutions. We've had peace for the past 11 years, although it's been a fragile peace, which I'll talk to a, a, a little bit later, but we haven't had any conflict on conflict. I think another thing that we have to celebrate is the fact that we've had $16 billion worth of investments, both in mining, agriculture, palm oil, um, oil and gas, fisheries, all of our traditional iron ore as well, all of our traditional um, income generating um, sectors. We've also had steady economic growth, going from 5%, as little as 5% to almost 8%, reaching possible double digits. Um, in terms of governance and the rule of law, we've built a number of accountability and governance institutions, the Anti-Corruption Commission, we've built the Public Procurement and Concessions Commission, the General Auditing Commission. Now, these are institutions that, that are supposed to ensure that there's governance in public sector spending, financial management. In terms of infrastructure and basic services, yes, we've built a number of schools, we've built a number of healthcare institutions, and we've also paved a number of laterite roads as well as asphalt roads in order to enable people to get from one part of the country to another. I think you feel a butt coming on. But in spite of all of these gains in the past 11 years, I have to admit that one of the major challenges like, that Liberia has faced is that we've placed so much of an emphasis on quantity and not enough of an emphasis on quality. So if you talk about the healthcare system or the education system, we've ticked all the boxes. You know, there are development outcomes where they say you have to build these number of healthcare institutions or these number, or these number of students have to be enrolled. But they're enrolled in schools that don't have basic supplies. You go to hospitals that don't have medical equipment. Healthcare professionals are not being trained in large numbers. So again, the emphasis on quantity over quality is incredibly problematic. I think another problem that we face is that we tend to pander to the international aspirations without focusing on domestic, the domestic aspirations of the people. And Liberia is such a classic example of this, and I'll give you an example. When we were going through our HIPAA process, the Highly Indebted Poor Countries Initiative, where we were trying to get billions and billions of dollars of debt relief, we slashed our social spending budget in order to maintain a cash-based budget, um, balanced budget. Now, if the international community is telling you on one end that you have to increase social services, but then on the other hand, they're telling you to slash your social services spending. For me, that's a bit of an, a contradiction in terms. So if we continue to pander to the international community while completely denying the voices of the people on the ground, this is why we have Ebola today, and this is why the trust has been eroded. Exactly. The third point I want to make is that we focus too much on Li in Liberia, and in other countries, I would argue, on GDP growth and not enough on human development. Mm -hmm. GDP growth is not the panacea for development. Human development is. If you look at the human development indices for Liberia, you'll find that in 2014, we scored, I think we were at 175 out of 187 countries. Now, admittedly, in 2011, our human development indices were much lower. So I have to say, that's a cause for celebration. But again, GDP growth, which we, we hail, and we think this is wonderful that we're approaching double digits, is not enough in terms of human development. Now, in 2008, I was a part of the government and we visited Liberia's sub-political divisions called counties. And we asked the people, we're, we're, we're at, the, at the cusp of developing our first post-war national development drive. What are your priorities? And I can tell you unanimously, the Liberian people said, health is number one. They said education is number two, and they said roads are number three. They were very clear about what their priorities were. Why is it that we didn't invest in those three priorities? Why is it that we have Ebola today? Because the domestic aspirations of the people were completely disregarded. <coughs> now, I often argue that Liberia is not a poor country, it's poorly managed, and I'll continue to say that until the day that I die. Liberia is not a poor country. 
we have gotten so many investments in the past 11 years, but we have not managed that money properly. I think the, the, the third point I want to make is Liberia's, this Ebola outbreak in Liberia has also exposed major deficiencies in our post-war development. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The first is we've experienced 11 years of what Johan Gautung calls negative peace. And negative peace is essentially the absence of armed conflict, the absence of war. But what we haven't experienced is positive peace. So those rules, those norms, those regulations that are supposed to transform societies, we have not focused on that. And one of the major <coughs> emphasis that I want to place is there's so, Liberia, I believe, is one of the most unequal countries on the face of this earth in terms of income. We would prefer, and we have in terms of our budget, spend so much money on giving salaries to political appointees who are making upwards of $5,000 a month. And we pay our healthcare professionals, we pay our educators less than $500 a month. Now, how do you expect these people to serve and serve in the way that they should when you've got political appointees who may or may not be competent in, in the services that they're rendering, pay, making much more, 10 times more than the people who are hired to serve? Now, this government official who said the other day that Liberian healthcare workers should put their lives on the line because at the end of the day, they're serving and they've taken the Hippocratic Oath. And what I, what I wanted to ask him is, are you willing to sacrifice your $5,000 a month to ensure that the healthcare workers that you're demanding go and serve and put their lives on the risk and pay them in insurance premiums? And I guarantee you the answer would be no. Another, another post-war development challenge that I've seen is the issue of corruption. Now, there, were five, there was a $5 million allotment from the National Legislature in Liberia given to the National Ebola Task Force. That, those funds have not been accounted for. There are questions galore about where they have gone. The finance minister has said that he will ensure that there's an audit on funds. But even the Liberian Senate, which isn't the most pristine, has been demanding for transparency in those funds. The, the General Auditing Commission chair said in 2007 that, that this particular administration is three times more corrupt than the National Transitional Government of Liberia, which doesn't have a pristine image. So corruption is definitely key, and I think this is corruption is why we find ourselves in this quagmire. Uh, we've, we've relied too intensely on donor aid. Almost 50% of spending in education and health in Liberia comes from donor aid. Why are we relying on donor aid when we say we have so many natural resources? So as a result of that, there's been a complete erosion of not only state-citizen relations, but also citizen-citizen relations, where people are so afraid to even come near one another that it's created distrust among citizens. Um, now I have to say quite honestly that the, one of the last points I'm going to make is Liberians are incredibly resilient to how much suffering can this one country take. And I keep asking this question over and over again when I have conversations with my family members who are in fear of their lives because they don't know what tomorrow brings. Now, there's so much local heroism. I think that the international press has paid such attention to non-African heroes in the press that they have neglected and completely obscured the fact that there are so many people putting their lives on the line to save their fellow citizens. And I have stories galore. There's an elderly man that I read about the other day who was basically burying the dead, whether Ebola or non-Ebola patients, with his bare hands. Now, I can imagine this man has probably developed an immunity to Ebola. But this is someone who isn't being paid. He's doing it on his own volition because he cares about his fellow citizens, and he doesn't want to see rotting bodies on, on, the, on the ground. I think another person that I, I definitely want to hail is my friend, Nwaigo Abdullah, who is an OBGYN. I had a conversation with her a couple of days ago, and I told her, Nawai, if they're not giving you personal protective equipment, don't you dare go to that hospital. Do you know what she said to me? If I don't go to deliver those babies, Raptel, who will? I'll just wear gloves, and I'll be careful, and I'll just put it in God's hands. These are the people who are selfless, who don't get the international attention, who are not in the headlines. Whose praises we need to sing. These are our unsung heroes and heroines. Another example of diaspora efforts is the Union of Liberian Organizations in the UK that has pulled together resources. They've sent resources to Liberia. They sent an ambulance to Liberia. They've sent medical resources totaling almost 10,000 pounds in the past three months. These are the people we need to be singing praises for. 
And the last thing I want to say is, I know I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. I've run out of time, actually. Is that, obviously, Ebola has exposed the fact that fundamental structural changes need to take place in these countries. It's not about the quick fixes. It's not about the band-aid approach. Is that governments and citizens must have an honest and earnest conversation about how to change structures, institutions as well, so that they serve the vast majority of citizens and not who are in the political elite, not who can fly to South Africa or fly to the United States to seek medical services or to seek educational services. Fundamental structural changes need to happen now, and we need to have these conversations immediately after this outbreak is contained. I'm, I am so convinced that it will take all of the efforts of the international community of Liberians, of Sierra Leoneans, of Guineans, to ensure that this outbreak is contained. But post Ebola, that's when the real work begins. Thank you.